consumption can be cured. The true remedy at last discovered. Upham's fresh meat cure. Prepared according to the formula of Professor Trousseau of Paris. The new plan of treating pulmonary diseases with fresh meat is creating a profound sensation in Europe. Its beneficial results have been heralded through the press in both hemispheres. The fresh meat treatment was first tried in Russia by Dr. Weiss. The results were no less gratifying than surprising. Consumptive cases in his hands, which had previously baffled the most skilled of the profession, yielded rapidly, as by charm, under the new treatment. But it is to Professor Trousseau of Paris that the world is chiefly indebted for making known to the afflicted the great feature of the fresh meat cure. It is positively asserted that, in no less than 2,000 cases in which it has been tried, it proved successful in nearly all. The fresh meat cure is now first offered to the American public as a proprietary remedy. It is put up in the form of a syrup. A case of bronchitis cured. Philadelphia, May 20th, 1868. S.C. Upham. Sir, my wife has had the bronchii with a violent cough of several weeks standing. At last she could not speak above a whisper. I purchased a bottle of Upham's fresh meat cure, and she commenced using it according to directions. After taking the first dose, her cough was better, and after four or five doses, she was cured of her cough and soreness, and her speech was restored. I will always keep a bottle of the meat cure in my house, for I am satisfied that all that is necessary to convince anyone of its merits is to make a trial of it, and I cheerfully recommend it to all whose condition demands anything of this nature. I want some of your circulars to send to my friends in New York and Boston. Joseph J. Rivers, 758 Howard Street Another certificate. Mr. Luke Davis of Irondale, Missouri, under date of June 1st, writes, With this you will receive $6 for seven bottles of Upham's Fresh Meat Cure for consumption. I received six bottles of your meat cure about four weeks ago for my brother. He had taken two bottles of it when last heard from, and said he had received more benefit from it than all the medicine he had previously taken. I also let a woman have a bottle on trial, and she says she has received more real benefit from the use of one bottle than from all the medicine she has taken for the past two years. Upham's Fresh Meat Cure for consumption and bronchial afflictions is prescribed and recommended by physicians all over the country and is performing more cures than all other remedies combined. A trial will convince the most skeptical. One dollar a bottle, six for five dollars. Sent by express. Circulars free. Sold by S.C. Upham, 25 South 8th Street, Philadelphia, and all druggists. Wholesale Agents in Syracuse, New York, Kenyon, Potter, and Company.
speed. I believe there was the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 17. As you've surmised by now, we're taking a little break from the Johnson impeachment because, well, because Uncle Hugh's got a bee in his bonnet and he's not going to rest until he gets it out. Also, I realized that the 4th of July is the perfect day for this. So here's what happened. I'm scrolling down through my Facebook feed, and I run into the following post from some guy I know through one of my spiders and spider photography groups. The modern Democratic Party was founded in 1828 by supporters of Andrew Jackson and has been playing racial politics ever since. Given this history, Joseph Crowley, 14th Congressional District, New York, clearly did not fit with the demographics of his constituents, where aging whites comprise only about 24% of the population. His opponent in the Democratic primary, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made certain that voters were aware of this discrepancy. Prior to his loss in the recent Democratic primary, Mr. Crowley was viewed as one of the most powerful people in the Democratic Party. Racial politics is a dangerous game. In contrast, the Republican Party was founded by anti-slavery advocates in 1854, and it has never strayed from the principle that race has no place in our politics. Hugh here. Excuse me while I walk across the room just to get far enough away from the microphone. Bullshit! Someone replied to him, How much of your historical facts can influence our current situation, and is it relevant? The original poster replies, The Democratic Party tried to leave its KKK past behind back in the 1960s, but it kept the notion of racial discrimination and identity politics alive. The principle that racism is a legitimate tool for social engineering by the government is still supported by the Democrats. Republicans continue to follow the principle that racism is not a legitimate tool, and thus this distinction is quite relevant today. To Republicans, people must not be viewed as representatives of a race, but always treated equally as individuals. To Democrats, each race represents a different community. This racial-ethnic community model is no different from the segregation model advocated by Democrats before 1970. The use of racial distinctions to secure the loyalty of voting blocs by Democrats is the same as it has always been. Relevant? Just ask Mr. Crowley. Hugh here. Motherfucking cock-knocking... All right, before I get into my reaction to this, let me just read you the reply I left before I unfriended and blocked his ass. I see who you are now. 
You are a person desperate to hide his callow motives under a veneer of rationality. The rhetorical gymnastics on display here would be hilarious if they weren't so repugnant. What you just did was a slap in the face to anyone who cares one whit about history. Not too many people have spent the last several months scrutinizing newspapers from 1868, but it just so happens I've done exactly that, and the simple truth is that the tribal hatred firehosing from Republicans of today is the same tribal hatred that firehosed from Democrats in 1868. You've attempted to obscure that simple truth with an obviously absurd sham of complexity. Shame on you! I am more than willing to converse with people who disagree with me, but this is beyond odious. This is obscene. This shows me that you cannot be trusted to argue in good faith. I don't want to know anyone who would abuse history for his own purposes the way you just did. Goodbye. So, you might be wondering how I came to know this pig fucker. Well, he seemed innocuous enough for quite a while. He posted mini-essays about artificial intelligence and biology. He sounded like a seasoned researcher and biologist. He sounded smarter than me. He sounded kind of Spock-like. And that did set off some mild warning signals. There was something about the flattened affect of those mini-essays that made me see him as an outlier. But I'm an outlier. I like weirdos, so I figured he was more or less just a more Spock-like version of me. Then the anti-affirmative action posts started, mostly denouncing Harvard over the recent court case over supposed discrimination against Asian Americans. I didn't know about the case, so I didn't hold his opinion against him as such. But again, there was something about that Spock-like tone, a monolithic wall of words brought to bear against the thought of an institution seeing race at all. That's it right there, the I-don't-see-race thing. The slightest whiff of that from anyone, regardless of political leanings, and I call bullshit. Anyway, when I saw this post, I doubt you will understand my revulsion and rage, but I'll try to explain it. I'm going to use the crudest analogy imaginable. If you don't want to hear it, skip ahead 30 seconds. Still there? Okay. I imagine that what I felt upon reading those posts was how a fundamentalist Christian might respond if I were to dip my dick in shit and fuck a Bible. He took something precious, something fragile, something sacred, and he violated it. I struggled to figure out why this bothered me so much, and I had another thought. There are predators and parasites lurking out there in the shadows of the informational ecosystem and my mind circled back to a train of thought it's been on for years now, the ways in which informational systems display phenomena analogous to those in biological systems. Crypsis, more or less a fancy word for the multifarious strategies organisms use not to be seen, is the most intriguing phenomenon. When I look at those comments about Republicans and Democrats, I can't shake the impression that I'm staring at a sophisticated bit of crypsis, and it's at once comical and terrifying. This fucking bullshit right here is an informational analog of Batesian mimicry. Batesian mimicry is when a prey species mimics a predator species to scare off its own predators, such as butterflies that evolved realistic-looking snake eye patterns on their wings. This guy's posts represent a pathetic, soft, harmless little sham of an argument masquerading as real rhetoric. Yet another thought occurred to me. 
This illustrates the logical fallacy of the view from nowhere, also known as the argument to moderation. It's a trap into which too many liberals fall, the assumption that in any argument, the truth must be somewhere between the two views. But it's not valid. Sometimes an assertion is simply true, and the opposing assertion is not only untrue, but malignantly batshit banana sandwich insane. You don't get to say just any nonsense at all and expect me to engage with you. This, better than anything I've seen in a long time, illustrates the importance of knowing history. I can see how an intelligent but misinformed person might fall for this. We have to know history so we can defend against obscenities like this. If you see anyone disparage the Democratic Party or aggrandize the Republican Party on the basis of a semantic coincidence, don't let them get away with that horse shit. Shut them the fuck down and walk away. That's why everything I'm saying right now is not a response to that guy or his ilk. I will not engage with people who would abuse history the way he did. This is for the people who are intellectually honest, but who don't know better. We owe it to them, to ourselves, and to our ancestors to fight for the integrity of history. So how do we do that? Well, let's start by addressing the screamingly obvious untruth that Republicans believe race has no place in politics. That's easy. Just Google the terms gerrymandering and Southern strategy, if you're not already familiar with them. Then listen to the newspaper articles I'm about to read you. But beyond that, be on the lookout for glaring asymmetries. It was the preposterous asymmetry of that guy's argument that revealed his intellectual dishonesty and the futility of engaging with him. He wanted to own everything the Republican Party did in the 1800s, but nothing they've done since 1960. At the same time, he was taking the Democratic Party to task for its actions of the 1800s, but failing to give it credit for anything it's done since the 1960s. Even though modern liberal Democratic rhetoric has perfectly paralleled Republican rhetoric in the 1860s, he won't recognize that. Likewise, he won't recognize abhorrent actions by the modern Republican Party that so perfectly parallel the vile rhetoric of Democrats in the 1860s. He's swinging two single-edged swords in tandem. Instead of picking up Occam's razor and saying the simple truth that the two parties gradually swapped ideologies. Want to prove to anyone just how simple and obvious that truth is? Here's some ammunition. In keeping with the podcast format, let's start with July 4th, 1868. I can't take you exactly to July 4th because no Syracuse paper was published on that day, but I can read you one hell of an article about the 4th of July that was printed in the Democratic newspaper, the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, on July 3rd, 1868. Listen carefully because it all sounds reasonable, right up until the moment it doesn't. The 4th of July. Another anniversary of our nation's independence is upon us. What recollections cling around that hall? What bright visions appear as if it were but yesterday? What thoughts linger in the mind of the gallant and superhuman achievements that noble band of patriots who threw down the gauntlet to one of the most powerful nations on the earth? How we think of their privations and sufferings, 
of their weary marches, their dreadful conflicts with the well-disciplined soldiers of Britain, and their final triumph, a triumph that made their country the most powerful republic that ever existed, and taught a lesson to despots for all time to come, to beware how they intrigue on the rights and liberties of their subjects. It was a warning to tyrants that revolutions are sometimes successful, and that a people determined to be free cannot be held in bondage. Nor was the fire of freedom, kindled in this country, confined alone to our shores. It sped, like an electric spark, across the broad Atlantic to the vine-clad hills of France, the verdant valleys of Ireland, and among the mountains of Switzerland. For over 70 years, the American people enjoyed a degree of prosperity unequaled in the history of nations. Our population increased from thousands to tens of millions. Our broad domains were rapidly cultivated. The laborer received the reward of his toil and was contented and happy. The artisan, a ready market for the work of his hands. Manufactures flourished. Our merchantmen were found on every sea, and the American citizen respected in every nation in the world. We were then a happy and united people, the hope and pride of the oppressed of every clime. But how is it today? In seven years we have changed as if by magic. The poorer classes have to bear the hitherto unknown burdens of government. The rich man invests his greenbacks in bonds on which there are no taxes, and the poor man must pay him interest and principal in gold, while he himself must take his pittance in the depreciated greenback. Congress legalizes the greenback for the poor man and makes a proviso that the bondholder must be paid, not in what he lent the country, but in gold. The mechanic must pay a tax on every article that leaves his workshop. Business is unsettled because of a fluctuating currency. Our commerce is driven from the seas, and the American citizen is treated with the greatest of contempt by the most petty powers of Europe. We have five military despots over what were once then sovereign states of the Union whose decrees are as inexorable as those of the Tsar of Russia. The descendants of revolutionary sires in those states are politically disfranchised, while the ballot is forced into the hands of the sable sons of Ham. We see their property destroyed, their villages sacked, and their homes desolated. See the aged father mourning the loss of the son that ought to be the stay of his declining years, the widow weeping over the grave of her natural protector as if her heart would break, the little fatherless children gazing in wonder on the ruins of their former happy home, which the ruthless hand of war has raised to the ground, and upon whose face the smile of childhood is rarely seen. And yet they are not punished enough to satiate the fiendish appetites of our godlike dictators, compared with whom the infamous Jacobins of France are as angels. Is it to be wondered, under these circumstances, that a death-like apathy pervades the mass of the people in regard to the coming anniversary of our independence? Let us hope 
dear reader, that the next anniversary of our country's freedom will smile on a reunited and happy people, united never again to be distracted by sectional strifes or civil feuds. Hugh here. Sounds depressingly familiar, doesn't it? 150 years ago was no different than it is today. Rich people telling poor people that some other poor people are to blame for their problems. I hope you caught that great bit about how the ballot is forced into the hands of the sable sons of Ham. Also, note the fear-mongering based on foreign, mysterious, dangerous ideologies. That's a recurring pattern. Now, let's jump forward 80 years and listen in on a campaign speech by Southern Democrat Strom Thurmond. But I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there's not enough troops in the army to force the Southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our spring pools, into our homes, and into our churches. In case you couldn't make out that recording, here's what he said. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there's not enough troops in the army to force the southern people to break down segregation and admit the nigger race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, and into our churches. Swell guy, huh? Now, let's jump forward nine years to Friday, August 30th, 1957 and look in on the front page of the Knickerbocker News of Albany, New York. Aw, there's this cute picture of Strom Thurmond kissing his wife. It's so sweet. Let's see what's happening here. Congress in high gear for adjournment today. Bus ends a filibuster. Senator Thurmond, Democrat, South Carolina, kisses his wife after ending his filibuster against the Civil Rights Bill. He had held the Senate floor 24 hours and 18 minutes, beating Senator Wayne Morse's record set in 1953. United Press Telephoto. Senate approval of Rights Bill ends last block. Washington, Associated Press. With the last major roadblock swept aside in the Senate, Congress drove for probable adjournment of its 1957 session today. Senate passage late last night of an historic civil rights bill broke the legislative logjam, putting the go-home rush in high gear. Today, the Senate found itself with no major legislation hanging fire before the final gavel. In the House, a compromise foreign aid bill and another designed to protect FBI files were expected to get quick approval. Senate Democratic leader Johnson of Texas called that body back to work at 9 a.m. today, three hours ahead of the usual starting time. The House arranged to meet at 10 a.m. Leaders predicted Congress, if it really tried, could complete its work in time to quit and go home by mid-afternoon, ending an eight-month session that began January 3rd. The Senate passed the Civil Rights Bill, designed to protect the voting rights of Negroes, on a 60-15 to 15 roll-call vote. Passage came near the end of a marathon 39-hour session in which Senator Thurmond, 
D. South Carolina, waged a record one-man filibuster against it. Senator Thurmond spoke for 24 hours and 19 minutes and said, I feel fine, when he quit. Thurmond sets record. Senator Thurmond smashed a four-year record of 22 hours and 26 minutes held by Senator Morse, Democrat, Oregon. The civil rights measure represented a victory for the Eisenhower administration, although it had been shorn of some features the president had requested. It remained to be seen whether Mr. Eisenhower now would soften his appraisal of the 1957 legislative record of the Democratic-controlled Congress. He told an August 21st news conference he viewed that record as a disappointing one. Senator Johnson replied then that he would not quarrel with Mr. Eisenhower about the matter. The Democratic leader said the record would speak for itself, adding, By the time Congress adjourns, we will have given serious consideration to all of the recommendations the President has made. We will have approved those we think are to the best interests of the country and will have defeated those we think are bad. Ike gets measured. Senate approval sent the compromise civil rights measure to Mr. Eisenhower. Hugh here. Have you ever gotten so mad at the idea of people getting civil rights that you broke a record for filibustering? Ah, but he wasn't done yet. Check out this little article from the same page that details his TV appearance right after the filibuster. Today, Thurmond gets a silencer. New York, Associated Press. Senator J. Strom Thurmond, Democrat, South Carolina, was far from out of breath after his 24-hour, 19-minute filibuster ended last night against the civil rights bill. He appeared this morning, still going strong, on Dave Garraway's NBC TV Today show. Garraway finally broke in to tell him that he had only one minute more to talk before a scheduled station break. See, it's funny because <laughs> he filibustered against a civil rights bill and then, and then the TV guy told him he was out of time. <laughs> Now, we're going to make one last jump. This time, we're moving forward seven years to September 17, 1964, and we're looking in on the Schenectady Gazette of Schenectady, New York. The front page has a photo of a dapper-looking Strom Thurmond. Let's see what he's up to. UPI telephoto. He's backing Barry. Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina waves his hat in farewell as he leaves Washington for his home state to announce he is bolting the Democratic Party to become a Goldwater Republican. Thurmond supports Goldwater. Columbia, South Carolina, September 16th, UPI. Senator Strom Thurmond harshly repudiated the Democratic Party tonight as gradually leading the nation to a socialistic dictatorship and announced he was quitting to become a Goldwater Republican. Senator Barry Goldwater threw wide open the GOP door to the politically powerful Thurmond, hailing him as one of the great Americans who has decided that he has had enough. 
The defection of Thurmond, top vote-getter in South Carolina, could cost President Johnson South Carolina's support in the November election. The Democrats had only a slim 9,000-vote edge in the state in 1960. If the American people permit the Democratic Party to return to power, freedom as we know it in this country is doomed, Thurmond said over a statewide television hookup. His announcement had been widely leaked in advance. Unless Goldwater is elected president, he said, individuals will be destined to lives of regulation, control, coercion, intimidation, and subservience to a power elite who shall rule from Washington. Thurmond is the first major political defector since 1955 when Senator Wayne Morse of Oregon switched to the Democratic Party. Goldwater, on a four-day political swing through the South, put aside his prepared remarks at Knoxville to welcome Thurmond to the party and express the hope that the senator's action will be an example to tens of thousands of other Southern Democrats. I don't blame the Democrats for leaving the party that no longer represents their views, Goldwater said. Thurmond's action also won praise from James F. Burns, South Carolina's most prominent political figure. Whether or not South Carolinans agree with you, they will admire your courage, Burns wrote Thurmond. I am proud of you. The 61-year-old Thurmond recalled the saying that, For evil to triumph, it is only necessary that good men do nothing. Particularly is this true in time of crisis, he said. Seldom before in the history of our nation have we faced so great a crisis. Thurmond said he would be derelict in his duty if he remained silent. The Democratic Party has abandoned the people, he said. It has turned its back on the spiritual values and political principles which have brought us the blessings of freedom under God and a bountiful prosperity. It has breached the trust reposed in it by the people. It has repudiated the Constitution of the United States. It is leading the evolution of our nation to a socialistic dictatorship. The Democratic Party has forsaken the people to become the party of minority groups, power-hungry union leaders, political bosses, and big businessmen looking for government contracts and favors. The Democratic Party has used the government as a propaganda machine to distort the truth and deceive the public to the extent that a sub-cabinet official can publicly defend the administration's right to lie and remain in office, unrebuked. The Democratic Party has invaded the private lives of people by using the powers of government for coercion and intimidation of individuals, the Democratic Party has rammed through Congress unconstitutional, impractical, unworkable, and oppressive legislation which invades inalienable personal and property rights of the individual. The Democratic Party has encouraged lawlessness, civil unrest, and mob actions. The Democratic Party has violated its trust by using the power of government to suppress information on scandals and corruption of its leaders in government and party offices, Thurmond said. There you have it, folks. You know me, I'm always preaching against oversimplification, but 
if you had to pick a moment when the Republican and Democratic parties swapped ideologies, you could do one hell of a lot worse than that. Don't be fooled, folks. That, right there, is your modern Republican Party. And that's all I've got for this episode, folks. Except, happy 4th of July. How about we celebrate the birth of this great country by showing a little fucking respect for its history and making life a little more difficult for those who don't. Oh, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Through the air with the greatest of ease A daring young man on the dying trapeze His movements were graceful, the girls he could please And my love he stolen away